0: Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk with Bill Crosby about Afghanistan. Bill served as Canadian Ambassador to Afghanistan from 2009 to 2011. His Foreign Service career also included assignments in Washington and as the first Assistant Deputy Minister of our Consular Services Branch. Bill and I first met When he worked with the Honorable John Crosby when Mr. Crosby was trade minister. Bill is now devoting much of his time to the Heart of Asia Society, a research institute that focuses on what is happening in in Afghanistan. For listeners, it has been a year since the Biden administration decided to withdraw the remaining American forces, the result of which was a a Taliban victory. We will not soon forget the images of those at Kabul airport seeking to leave the country to come to places like Canada. The return of the Taliban ended yet another phase in the troubled nation's history. In the days before the US departure, Afghan forces melted away despite the training and arms they'd received from countries like Canada. Afghan's president, Ashraf Ghani, and many of those around him fled the country. Ashraf Ghani now lives in the United Arab Emirates. In a subsequent interview with the BBC, He declined allegations that he left with what some said were suitcases full of money. It was not a graceful exit for Ghani or the Western powers. For President Biden, it marked a significant decline in his own popularity. For some analysts, it has also signified a Western defeat that has encouraged the aggressive behavior of Vladimir Putin in Ukraine and Xi Jinping in uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and in the North Pacific. The return of the Taliban was a sad end to a chapter that began in the aftermath of 9-11 when the United States and NATO allies swept the Taliban from power because they had given a home to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And the recent drone killing of bin Laden's successor in a Kabul suburb makes one wonder how much has really changed. But one thing that we should never forget and that is the 40,000 Canadians who served as part of the NATO mission from 2001 to 2014. The conflict claimed 158 lives and many more injured. Canada has also invested 3.8 billion in international development assistance since 2001 in Afghanistan. Since the fall of Afghanistan last August, Canada has welcomed more than 15,000 refugees from the troubled land. Canada has also committed more dollars for development assistance through the United Nations. So let's begin. Bill, why don't you start by telling us a bit about the Heart of Asia Society and your work there. I know you, as you just said to me, you've recently come back from Europe and you've been down in the States. So give us, tell listeners what the Heart of Asia Society is all about.
1: The Heart of Asia Society was founded by two former Afghan ambassadors, Jawed Ludin and Janan Mozazi. And it was established as an NGO in Afghanistan about three years ago. With the collapse of the Islamic Republic, um, we also registered in Canada as a nonprofit. It is an organization um, which as its name suggests is not just about Afghanistan, it's also about all uh, Afghanistan's region, its neighbors. Because Afghanistan and its future is totally implicated with the decisions that are made by its neighbors. So they have felt, and, and I totally agree with them, that Afghanistan really needs to help establish itself in a positive way with its neighbors. They have the ability as they've proven in the past to keep Afghanistan as a battlefield or they can support what Afghanistan's future could be. So our organization has really been uh, focused on trying to get support from the region for the peace negotiations that had started in 2020. And of course, now with the Taliban takeover, we have a somewhat different focus.
0: Bill, why don't you talk a little bit about the neighbors, because you've identified them, and I'm thinking you're probably talking about Pakistan, uh, India, I guess, uh, China. How does that play into the heart of Asia?
1: So, um, the Afghanistan is, is a diverse country made up of different ethnic groups.
0: Because how many and, neighbors does it have? Isn't it there about, I mean, I looked at a map not too long ago, and I think there's... <laughs> Is it sort of seven or eight? Because it borders on several countries.
1: Right, so the neighbors um, all have states in terms of uh, ethnic groups in Afghanistan with whom they have historic relations. So the neighbors, of course, are starting in, in the West is uh, and the South, Pakistan, Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, China, little tiny uh, border with Afghanistan and India. Um, well, it's the Kashmir region, India. Uh, But of course, the other countries that are real stakeholders are Turkey, right? Because you have Turkmen there. Uh, Russia, because of the Central Asian states and the ethnic groups uh, that come from Afghanistan and also are represented in Central Asia. Um, And of course, we have to include the EU, the US, Japan. These are all countries that have uh, now, fairly uh, extensive engagement with Afghanistan.
0: Now, uh, the two ambassadors are heading up the that which you're involved in. I know you've just been to Europe and you've been to the States. Are you getting traction? And I guess well, I know you're a research institute, and I will will link to you know, the work you've done. And you've I've, I've looked mm-hmm. at some of the reports, which I think are are extremely useful and give an insight into what's going on. But what's your kind of primary purpose? Is it trying to seek relief or help for those who are in Afghanistan?
1: So we have been running the longest standing regional dialogues um, uh, for uh, the past uh, almost three years. And this brings together people from the region, not at the officials' level, at one level below what we call a track two dialogue. Yeah. Um, and we've been running these to uh, build understanding of what's happening in Afghanistan, to provide a platform, uh, including for the former Taliban chief negotiator in the peace negotiations, the republic's chief negotiator, um, key players from the region and beyond, to talk about uh, the uh, potential for the future of Afghanistan. So our focus has really been on engagement. Uh, and the engagement of course includes academics, think tanks, civil society, Afghans, and people from these other countries. Our, our focus is, is trying to build support for what we think is ultimately going to be required, which is a political settlement. Now, um, that took it was a major blow to that um, theory with uh, the a revelation that they were harboring the leader of Al-Qaeda. And it's going to make it that much more difficult for countries, not just in the West, but also its neighbors uh, to uh, engage with the Taliban regime.
0: Bill, let me ask you a tough question. One that I have a view on, but do you think we should uh, recognize the Taliban government so that we have a presence on the ground in Kabul? given that we have such big interests from our period there, and Canadians who have ties and roots in Afghanistan, keeping in mind that diplomatic recognition is not uh, a kind of an endorsement of the government, but simply a means by which we can do business, because some of the European governments have indeed kept their embassies in Kabul, haven't they?
1: So uh, it's interesting to note that there are many countries that have reopened their embassies in an unofficial way. Two things, while more countries have engaged with the Taliban, have opened their offices in Kabul or have brought delegations to Kabul, no one has recognized the Taliban regime. That, that is a line that countries have not been willing to cross despite the pressure from countries like Pakistan, uh, So there and and the Taliban, of course, what they're really looking for is they'd love to have international recognition but they need pragmatic recognition. So that is particularly important for the borders, uh, people and goods flow. So they have that, there is that level of engagement but they do not have formal recognition. We should not recognize them Um, but I think we could do more in terms of engagement. Now. I say that uh, with the thought as well that we have to think about the implications of what we've learned from the Al-Qaeda leader uh, living very close to where our embassy is in Kabul because that really shows the duplicity of the Taliban leadership. And it undermines the message from the Taliban that they are not going to harbor extremists and they represent no threat to other countries.
0: So, Bill, you know you were there. You devoted a lot of effort. What's your take on what is happening? I and mean, as you pointed out, I guess the, the there wasn't a lot of confidence in the Taliban administration. And certainly, as the most recent uh, revelation, as you say, that the 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 drone killing of the uh, Al the the Al Qaeda leader, just. Brought home again that this is not a regime you can trust. The treatment of women, which you've detailed in some of the reports you've done, but nonetheless, as you say, you know we have interests there. Um, yeah. But was was I guess to go back a step, was this all sort of inevitable? The fact that the their armed forces crumbled and once the Americans and the the, the basically left, did, did did we just sort of did we pay enough attention to history and culture?
1: So I I would say let's go back to the Doha agreement in February 2020 between the US and the Taliban. And that I think sowed uh, the seeds for for the collapse of the Republic because the Republic was excluded which fed into the whole Taliban uh, mantra which is this is a puppet regime. Uh, It has no legitimacy uh, among Afghans. So that was, I think, a fatal blow. Then of course, there were mistakes made by the Republic government themselves. They were so upset with the fact that they were kind of being forced into uh, releasing all these prisoners and participating in what turned out to be a Potemkin village of negotiations for a a political settlement. So those, those negotiations did take place in Doha, but as one of the negotiators from the Republic team, who's also on our board of directors, Fatima Gilani said, uh, there was never a piece of paper signed. There was never actually a piece of paper from the Taliban. It was just talk, nothing came of it. And I think when Ashraf Ghani left um, uh, her, and her description was, I think, very prescient. She said, the Taliban came to Kabul expecting to meet a wall of concrete and they discovered it was made of tissue paper. There was no will to fight, especially when the leadership left. So this came after you know months of anxiety and uh, a, a lack of faith that the republic could uh, could continue.
0: Because you can't help contrast how the Afghan leadership behaved with the Ukrainian leadership in the when when the Russians invaded. Um, is was it just political will? Was it just the fact that the, 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 the leadership in Afghanistan simply didn't have confidence in their, the forces that were around them? Or it just seemed kind of, well, tragic and sad, but not, not a lot of, uh, of, of what's my father used to say gumption on the part of the, their leadership.
1: Well, remember the Afghans have been through 20 years of armed opposition in our country. The most brutal assassinations taking place throughout the country uh, by the Taliban and, and, and some other groups, including ISIS. So it was never a country that was at peace. The Taliban like to say, well, we've now created security in the country. But as another one of our um, members of our um, board says, Dr. Sima Samar, it's, it's the security of the graveyard. of the population are excluded from public life, excluded from education, and are now exposed to the kind of violence that has been endemic in Afghanistan, often taking place in homes. So um, I think the, the other factor that explains why things collapse so quickly is that the neighboring countries, Pakistan chief among them, were supporting the Taliban. So you had an armed insurgency taking place in Afghanistan with the support, full support of uh, the Pakistani military uh, and uh, a blind eye cast by other countries, China, Russia and others, Iran, uh, who decided that, uh, you know what? The Taliban wouldn't be a bad idea in part because they want to give the US a black eye, but also they thought this is at the end of the day, they're going to win out they have the staying power.
0: Which takes us back to why the heart of Asia and why the neighbors are so important, because as you point out, they in a sense helped determine the situation we're in today.
1: Yeah, I think one of of the false steps of the Islamic Republic and perhaps aided by us is because the, the Western support was so important, they spent all their time cultivating their ties with Western governments, right? Brussels, Washington, London, Berlin, Tokyo—they didn't go to the neighboring countries. They did not create a positive environment with the native with their neighboring countries in terms of trade and, and the security interests they would naturally have. So this was this was one of the Achilles' heels of the Islamic Republic. They became divorced from their region and totally focused on the Western support and maintaining it. Um, and of well, course what was that
0: bill i mean i i i i what you say makes sense but i i it's the first time i've sort of heard it framed like that but it it, it makes sense but why wouldn't they have especially when as you pointed out earlier that afghanistan is multicultural and certainly and you were pointing out trade has always uh, depended well has been interdependent with its neighbors as 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 with other nations
1: yeah. Again, I think there, there's, there's two reasons for it. One is the armed conflict that was taking place in Afghanistan. So normal you know, trade flows couldn't happen, right? Uh, so that, that really impeded the ability for neighbors and others to be more engaged with Afghanistan. Secondly, it's Pakistan. Pakistan had the ability to um, open its border to trade to allow transit trade from India up through Pakistan, Afghanistan, Central Asia, they wouldn't do that. So I think, uh, you know, Pakistan has a lot to answer for in the sense that uh, they never saw, or or certainly not in recent years, did not see the opportunity for Afghanistan to become a normal country with which they could have a growing economic and political relationship. there was, oh, that mistrust is very, very deep among Afghans towards Pakistanis. And it certainly pervade the um, Afghan government.
0: We, we put, as you pointed out with 20 years, a lot of effort, sacrifice of Canadians, our efforts to establish democracy when you were there, as our ambassador, this has always been one of our uh, driving initiatives in places like Afghanistan. (laughs) Is this still an effort worth making on the part of Canada with countries like Afghanistan?
1: Um, My maternal grandmother in Newfoundland where I'm from was one of the original suffragettes. And women got the right to vote in 1925, right? 100 years ago. Uh, You go to a place like Afghanistan, where, of course, they ha- they've had a form of democracy uh, at the community level and at the national level through lawyer Jurgis, no women involved. Um, and they also have a tribal system. And it's a tribal system that, of course, is found in many countries. And what I, what I learned is while we supported the, the democratic processes and elections as the ultimate, um, Um, uh, evidence of a democracy existing it was clear that the warlords were all right with that because at the end of the day they control the votes so it didn't change things on the ground in kandahar that they had an election ahmed wali karzai who was the big warlord through many of these elections he decided you know who would be who would be elected and unfortunately, we had the form of democracy through elections, but we didn't have the substance. And the substance comes from institutions and organizations and civil society. And it takes time. And I think that's part of the problem. It takes a very long time to establish uh, something that we would call a, a democracy. And I think for a democracy, we don't often have the time, right? We don't have the patience. Yeah. Our electors are. Our voters are saying, "Wait a moment! Why didn't this happen? Why did that happen? Look at this terrible way that women are being treated. Pressure being put on politicians for instantaneous results, and of course, we meet that pressure by throwing money at it. But it takes time. So I think you're right. It's it's partly uh, that you know we didn't, we haven't, we don't have the patience to deal with the cultural change that needs to take place to foster it." Um, and I would say, Colin, when people say, well, now it's, it's all ended, it was a disaster, the story is not over yet. There are millions of Afghans who have been educated, who um, have en- enjoyed um, you know, freedoms that they haven't had, who've had, a, a free, they had the most vibrant and free media in, in Asia. Um, they, they had an economy with, which opened up opportunities. They all have phones now, cell phones, so they can connect with one another. They have been exposed to the wider world. I don't know what that's going to mean for the future, um, but I think that's where we have to rest our hope that what we did in terms of helping Afghans to take more control of their own future will result in in a better future for them down the road.
0: So, Bill, to those. You Who know, look at this and just with great sadness and think of the collateral damage uh, that, it, that we're seeing now, particularly amongst women uh, and young girls. And then you sort of look at, put this up against our sacrifice and assistance, and they say, Did it make any difference? Did it make a difference?
1: Absolutely, Colin. Um, you know, I remember when we, when we, even when I was there, you know, the ministries, there was no one, they, they had nothing. They had no functioning government uh, when, when the emirate collapsed back in, in 2001. So there, there was no government that could provide any services to people. That now exists. Now, whether the Taliban will be able to maintain it and will invest in it remains to be seen. But one reason why neighboring countries have not recognized this government, nor has anybody else, is they know that historically, one group, a minority group, a minority ethnic group, such as the Pashtuns, that seeks to govern the country only based on their own ethnicity, is bound to fail. It will fail at some point. And, and it's quite clear that in the past, neighboring countries and others further afield are quite happy to support an armed uprising. And that is, that is unfortunately the future that Afghanistan face, faces uh, assuming history re- repeats itself. And that's why countries are very hesitant to say, okay, let's give them a chance. Now they've given them a chance for the past year. You know, there have been attempts to maintain a political dialogue. Of course, Western countries and others have tried to influence them on women's rights and education, but there have also been many other opportunities for Afghans to come together with the Taliban to engage. But it's quite clear from within the country, they're not talking to any civil society. They're not talking to Afghans who are not Taliban and supporters of them. So I, I think it's, it's a very dismal future and they are not going to last unless they have the maturity to realize that capitalizing on what could be a more secure and prosperous era for Afghanistan requires them to bring in these other groups. And I think it's not a monolith. I mean, the Taliban has is, is also got factions. They've got people who are more moderate uh, they have others who, who are influenced by what they've seen of the outside world. So I, I don't, uh, don't despair that that will not happen. And I'm convinced that they will not last if they continue on, on this trajectory.
0: And Bill, you know, you're speaking with authority because, as you point out, you're still doing these track two discussions, which clearly involve those associated with the, the government, if not members of the government so yeah. as as you say, there you you' you see signs of those who would perhaps show the 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 moderation and the maturity to recognize that if they want to make progress, they are going to need assistance from Western world, and that assistance is probably dependent on on them changing their behavior. but which up to now, Again, as your reports have detailed, particularly on the treatment of women and uh, media freedom, the the, the tide has gone the other way.
1: So the political settlement is is key, but just as important is them having the competence to actually run a government, to have a decision-making structure that will enable decisions to be made, to have people with a technical expertise to run the central bank, and just one example of why they're how they're not doing that. Um, someone I know who's been working on a hydropower plant in a rural part of Afghanistan, a small plant. He said that was completed just before the Taliban took over, and they went with their proposed uh, rates for charging customers, the industrial and and, and other customers, uh, for hydropower. Uh, the Taliban um, looked at the rates and said, "Oh well." this is going to have to go up to the supreme leader. They said, the supreme leader? Uh, does he have to decide this is just like a local area? Oh yeah, so the supreme leader comes down and says, this is what the rates have to be. So the operator of the facility said, if those are the rates, we're closing down because we, we can't last if, if, if that's what you think it, you know the revenue will be. So they went back to the supreme leader and he came down with another rate and they said, that's fine. It, you still have not made this a viable project. So the people in the ministry that is responsible for, uh, you know, regulating uh, electricity and, and power generation, they still have the technocrats there. But the technocrats told the operators this facility, the Taliban don't listen to them. They go to their theocratic leader, the supreme leader, to decide everything. So they've got the technical expertise to determine what would be a fair rate and rate of profit, and et cetera, et cetera. But they're sidelined. And I, I'm afraid that's the way that they're operating now.
0: So, Bill, you talked about a political settlement. What, from your perspective, does that have to include?
1: Well, uh, it needs to include the various ethnic groups. Um, so, you know, they, they have to feel that they're represented. They need to have a constitution. There is not now a constitution, right? The Taliban have said, oh, we're, we're going to restore the 1964 constitution, but with, with not saying much more beyond that. So uh, you don't have any legal system anymore. So you have to have a legal structure that doesn't exist. Um, and what you hear from people is the the, the, the extent of the Taliban rule depends still very much on the individuals who are in charge around the country. So there are more lenient conditions in certain parts of the country than there are in others. Where the Taliban have really concentrated their power is one controlling women, right? I mean, they've really made that a number one thing to push women out of public life Two, controlling the media. So they don't allow reporting on what's actually happening in Afghanistan. And three, revenue generation at the borders. So this is a physical area that they can control. And they're very good at that. When you've got a bunch of people with guns, they've been able to push the warlords out and they've been able to ensure that the revenue collected is now going back into the government when this was not the case in the Islamic Republic.
0: So you've, do you have, you mentioned the technocrats, are there enough people in Afghanistan to, to make a viable nation if you proceed to a political settlement? Because it strikes me that it would be best if it was a made in Afghanistan by the Afghans themselves settlement. Because as you point out, one of the problems of Doha was that they simply weren't present, the, that the West can provide assistance, but it really, it, it, should it not be the Afghans themselves that take the next step?
1: Absolutely, and I think that's where Canada could uh, could help. Um, so one of the one of the meetings I had in Finland was hosted by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and it was a conference called National Dialogue, and they brought together people from many different countries. and I was really struck um, by um, some of the people from Myanmar, and Myanmar has created this national unity consultation council with with the military government now in charge so they've organized themselves with uh, people from outside the country who've had to flee and people in the country to help build a vision for for what they want their country to be Um, of course they can't talk to the military leaders who aren't interested in talking to them that's what i think we could be doing to help the afghans uh to start trying to take control themselves of what they want their future to be. Don't let uh, a minority group that have got the guns make the decisions for the vast majority of Afghans who have not elected them, are not supporting them, uh, but who have been cowed by the levels of violence over the past 20 years.
0: So in a practical sense, how do we do this? Because we've tended to focus on those who want out. And as I mentioned, we've taken 15,000 refugees. Uh, you know, and, and that that's another process you might want to speak to. But in terms of actually being helpful, which I, I hear you, how do we do that? Do we do that through some of the the international organizations that are still in Afghanistan, or do we do it with you know partners like the Finns or the, some of the, the those in the Nordic countries?
1: So one thing that has changed in Afghanistan, I mentioned people have cell phones, they also have the internet. Yeah. So we continue to run dialogues with people from Afghanistan. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, there, you can continue to engage Afghans who are living in the country. But remember, pretty well every Afghan who's left that country, they've got family all back in Afghanistan. They're just as committed to the future of the country. And they are a key part of uh, what's going to be needed for the future of the country. I think what you saw in terms of the evacuation, it was driven by fear because people had only known the Taliban for their ability to kill and assassinate. And I thought someone um, I met down in Washington was, was very prescient in saying that this time around, the Taliban is not going through public killings, right? Like they did to cower the people in the past because they're afraid of social media. They know that if those images are flashed around the world they will pay the price. So they're a little bit more reticent to impose themselves in such a dramatic way. And frankly, up till now, most people have said, well, fine, you know, you guys come in, we give you a chance. There is still violence taking place. They are killing people who are associated with the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces. Um, And depending on where you are in the country, it can be very dangerous.
0: Now, we say we have this program, we sort of say, well, we've reached our 15,000, but there are still more who want to come here. And there are groups within Canada, particularly those a lot of them associated with the military, trying to get translators and those who served us. Who, who, you know, arguably we still owe an obligation to. If you had to sort of put in priorities to the Canadian government, if you were saying, all right, here's an Afghan strategy for you to think about, what would be the main elements?
1: Well, I, I think you're right. We still have a moral obligation to those who feel under threat or who are, who are genu- genuinely under threat to help them. Um, Of course, we have to try to hold the Taliban to their word, which is we want people to return. Right. So the talents that we need the talent, we want them to return. Well, very good. Then provide some guarantees so people feel that they can go back to the country. Right. So that's 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 an that's an engagement we can have with the Taliban rather than just saying, help us get your people to Canada. Um, And the reality is no matter how many people come out, the vast majority of people are still gonna be there. So I think our obligation goes beyond helping those who want to get out out of uh, Afghanistan. And it goes towards trying to help Afghans, including Taliban, to figure out what their future could be together. Because I think, as I said before, if they don't resolve that problem, it is going to blow up again. And, uh, you know, this this does mean that there will have to be pressure on the Taliban, but they, in some ways, I think what's happened with this assassination is it has put paid to the argument that you heard from Habitullah, the Supreme Leader, who said, look, why is the rest of the world telling us what to do? They have no interest here. We only want to look after Afghanistan, our own sovereignty. Well, it's quite clear, because they are harboring these extremist groups that want to conduct terrorist operations on neighboring states and further afield, that they are not living up to that. So there is a very real interest why the rest of the world has not recognized you and have told you that you've got to do something to deal with that particular threat. But then there's the opportunity part. If you do that, then there is the opportunity for a real revival in Afghanistan.
0: It it strikes me you're kind of saying tough love approach. uh, And as we proceed very much verification along the way to make sure they're living up to their obligations. But that of course is gonna mean, I think people on the ground to to work with and to, to verify that progress is being made.
1: I think what is equally important, Colin, is we have to do it not as as the West, right? We have to do it with the international community writ large. So we're getting support from the Sasakawa Peace Foundation in Japan. And their motivation, they've never been involved in Afghanistan before. Their motivation is when the Islamic Republic collapsed and the Taliban took over, they said the extremist groups in Southeast Asia where they are working all took heart from this and said, this is great. You know, the Islamic world is moving ahead. And as the Japanese point out, these guys have no idea what the Taliban is really like. There is no country in the world that excludes 50% of its population from education, from public life. So they are the outlier. And as someone else also said, don't normalize Talibanization, right? Don't normalize that as if, oh, it's just another kind of Islam. It isn't just another kind of Islam. It's outside the normal realm of of Islamic thought, including in Afghanistan.
0: So Bill, I guess what you're saying is don't act as the West, but individually countries like Canada can take Steps to be helpful, but I guess what what is our carrot? It's it's development assistance, which they clearly want. But what's our stick?
1: It, for, for the for the Taliban eventually. Yeah, is sustainability to be able to sustain themselves in power.
0: So, in other words, we we as you as you've I think you've underlined a couple of times now, patience is something we have to practice, which is hard for the West because we want everything overnight with democracy and things like that. So, patience, the kind of track two approach you're taking, working with other international organizations, its a and, and looking for incremental improvement and holding the Taliban accountable in the meantime and calling them out.
1: So, one of the big mistakes, and I think everybody recognizes this, the Taliban were excluded from the Bonn Conference in 2001 which laid the the groundwork for the Islamic Republic. And I think we've been living with the consequences of that ever since. So when I say sustainability, I mean sustainability as part of a political mosaic in Afghanistan. But you have to help the, the Taliban to see that, to see that actually other Afghans are willing to live with them and are willing to respect them and are willing to have them as part of government provided that they also respect the needs and wishes of other Afghans. That that isn't the case at the moment. Uh, So I think, you know, in part we can try to draw examples from other parts of the world. I mentioned Myanmar, uh, where they're also going through these hugely difficult struggles uh, to try to build a future for their country when you've got one group that has seized power by force. and seeks to impose its vision on everybody else.
0: So as you look forward, you you, you you've got to have some optimism, because otherwise you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Do you do you feel that uh, you may not have turned the corner, but do you, do you see light at the end of the tunnel, in a sense? And do you see it in part because of what you're doing through these Track 2 discussions and just the fact that Taliban are doing a terrible job of running the country, and at some point the people are going to say, we want more?
1: It would be difficult to classify my view as optimistic. <laughs> um, it is going to be a long haul, I think. Now, there can be surprises along the way that could, could change things. And I do think the assassination of Al-Qaeda leader is, has the potential to shake things up quite a bit. It really does solidify the view of uh, the international community These guys are not playing fair. They're not playing fair with us. They're not playing fair with the Afghan people. Um, So, you know, I I also take um, comfort from the fact that there are very talented, experienced uh, Afghans dedicated to the country, inside the country, and outside the country. And they're not going to go quietly. Um, So, We'll see, you know, the Ukraine, Russia is a totally different situation because here you had a country, Ukraine, that was basically functioning, although they'd lost part of their country, uh, but they weren't dealing with daily violence and attacks in Kyiv and and their cities and the way that Afghans have had to deal with this for two decades. And the violence wasn't just from the Taliban, it was also from uh, the Allied forces too. So, you know, the the debilitating effect of that level of violence for so long, we really, I don't think, can understand it.
0: You know, you you talk about the long haul and I can only help but think of a conversation I had years ago, Stanford, with uh, Bob Conquest, who is the great uh, Russian scholar, uh, sort of history of the Soviet Union. And as he reminded me the uh, Conquest was British born. He said, from 1060, to 1215, know, the Magna Carta to 1832, the Great Reform Act was, what 800 years. Uh, <clears throat> we we have to, you know, democracy doesn't happen overnight. And for those of us, who think you can just install it. It doesn't work that way, which I think underlines what you're saying. So, you know, go. I'll I'll I'll, I'll pose one last question to you, long haul. What do you think that actually means in terms of time and effort on the part of nations like Canada, which now have interests in Afghanistan because of the sacrifice uh, that we've made there, and Canadians who, who now have roots in Afghanistan? What what what's your sort of prognosis looking looking ahead?
1: So I the- think there's one part of that is is dealing with the humanitarian situation and crisis in Afghanistan, which requires money, right? That basically, and we're pretty good at providing the funding for humanitarian support from the UN and that that we need to continue to do. But the other part, the more political part, isn't a question of money. I mean, we're not talking about big dollars. It is a question of um, using our inventiveness, using the Afghan diaspora in Canada. It's working with our allies. It's using our own good reputation because no one in Afghanistan thinks that Canada has, you know, some kind of claim on trying to get the resources of Afghanistan or which is the case that they often make about its neighboring countries. They don't have any of those suspicions about us. So I think we've, we've, got, some, we've got some assets we can bring to the table in terms of trying to build and sustain a, a political dialogue um which as you say isn't necessarily going to involve governments at this stage but needs to build what you need to have for grassroots uh, democrat, democracy or institutions and civil society and and people who've uh, built up an understanding of what that could what a democracy could look like with afghan uh, features
0: all right bill we'll leave it there and we'll, we'll link of course to the heart of asia and i just want to say i applaud the work you're doing and uh wish you good luck. It's it's uh, it's it's an important endeavor, a worthy endeavor. And uh I, I hope this uh our, our discussion reminds Canadians once again that, that there there was a reason why we were there in the first place. But my last question is always what are you reading or streaming these days?
1: So um I always like to draw people's attention to a podcast I love. It's called Rest is History. It's a kind of a reverent look at all kinds of historical issues from two British historians. And uh, they cover everything from who is great today. We had Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. Well, do we, would we apply that moniker to anybody today? So kind of fun questions. Uh, another one I enjoy is Monocle 24, uh, which is a sort of contemporary events. I'm sure you're aware of it. In terms of reading, I've been listening, I've been doing a lot of road trips, so I've been listening to Fiona Hill, There's Nothing For You Here. Yes, Fascinating description, not, you know, of course, we know her for her time in the Trump White House, but it's it's a story of her parents and grandparents in, in uh, northeast uh, England, and in to- uh, during a period of industrial decline. And another one I've enjoyed is John Kampfner, Why the Germans Do It Better. And it's about how Germany has been able to construct a robust uh, democracy uh, since the end of the Second World War—really a fascinating book.
0: Uh, I I underline all of those. I listened to uh, Dominic and Tom, and you know it, it is as you say the the history. And of course, Monocle Twenty Four, I think, this is a very good broadcast. And the Fiona Hill, I've done a couple of podcasts with her, and I, I do think her her book, particularly the the should say the early part, talking about growing up in Northern England, just yes. a, a real revelation. And she makes the case bluntly for social safety networks and uh, the the important role that good government can actually make as a difference in the lives of people. Well, Bill,
1: yep. thank yep. you. Uh, My pleasure, Colin. And I appreciate the work that you do too, and your institute.
0: Well, well, thank you. And I thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by Bill Crosby. We will link to the Heart of Asia Society, in the program notes. Remember, you can find the CJAI network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, do give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI. Thanks, as always, go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange.